you're listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Hello and welcome to the Transport for the North podcast. I am your host Gemma and today we are bringing you the highlights from one of our breakout sessions from our recent annual conference. This one is all about how a high-speed north can drive a high-speed recovery. For this session we were joined by some excellent panellists who were Tim Wood, Northern Powerhouse Rail Director at Transport for the North, West Yorkshire Mayor Tracy Brabin, Lorna Pimlet of HS2, Maggie Simpson of the Rail Freight Group and the session was chaired by Helen Pitt of The Guardian. So here is that whole session in full for you to enjoy. Welcome everybody to um, our session today about um, whether High Speed North can drive a high speed recovery. Uh, my name is Helen Pidd, I'm the Guardian's North of England editor. I head up a small team of reporters based out of the Guardian's original home in Manchester. Um, so I've spent nine years now moaning about terrible trains in the North of England. It used to be my hobby to moan about pacer trains, but I've had to find a new hobby now that they've finally been, uh, been retired. Um, and I took the train over this morning from Manchester. It took one hour and 14 minutes to get to Leeds. It's 42 miles, the same distance as from London Paddington to Reading. Uh, a journey, that journey you can do in 23 minutes. So it's clear that there's a massive chasm between the journeys of our great cities in the north and what you can do between towns and, and London in the south. Um, we're going to be talking about probably like three different high-speed lines in our sessions today, if you include both spurs of HS2. Um, and before we start, I'm interested to hear a kind of show of hands. Who truly believes that HS2 is going to come to Leeds in the next 20 years? Oh, the believers. Okay, so we've got about half. <laughs> Who thinks that Northern Powerhouse Rail will be built in full in the next 20 years? I would hope so. Yeah, we all hope, we all hope, don't we? <laughs> um, and it's sort of very depressing to hear from Tracy this, this morning about how there's been a 10% increase in car journeys, all of the challenges brought about by the pandemic, but also incredible opportunities for those of us uh, living and working in the north of England. Um, we've got a fantastic panel assembled for you today. Um, to my left um, is Tim Wood, who's the Rail Director of Transport for the North. So hopefully he'll be able to give us a good assessment on, on whether he thinks his big project is actually going to be built in full. We've got Tracy Brabin, who, if, if you were all here at the start, you already know, is the um, mayor of the West Yorkshire. We've got Lorna Pimlot, who is the sponsorship director of HS2. And we've got Maggie Simpson, who is the director general of the Rail Freight Group. Um, we're going to start off with five minute introductions from each members of the panel. I'll ask a couple of quick questions, and then it's over to you to ask what you would like. Um, but without further ado, um, I'll hand over to our first speaker, Tim Wood. Well, thank you very much, Helen. And I'm delighted to be here this morning, both in person and, of course, we've got a live feed as well. So, really, where are we on the railways? Well, quite frankly, we're still in the back lane. 18 months ago, Doug Okerby clearly said, let's accelerate HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail. And, of course, we're still waiting for the integrated rail plans to be published by government. Hopefully, that will come around the time of the Comprehensive Spending Review, which is at the end of next month. But we need to be really clear here. We're not going to level up until the flagship programme for Transport for the North, Northern Powerhouse Rail, gets that go-ahead and gets that go-ahead in full, as well as HS2, both the eastern and western leg. 
we rely on around 80 kilometres of that infrastructure. And even now, we're just seeing latest information coming from the Oxford Economics Review that Rhea had done. For every pound spent in rail, there's £2.50 back to the government in terms of the gross value add. And when we see what is rail worth per year, £14 billion per year to the pre-pandemic. So it's really important that the national institution of the railways, which has gone through the Spanish flu, two world wars, will come back again. But our problem here in the north of England is that we lack capacity. We've lost half our railways up here. We see freight trains trundling through Manchester Piccadilly. That's just not right in the 21st century. We see between Bradford and Leeds a sort of distance of eight miles taking 20 odd minutes on a train. That just cannot be right. That's why 45,000 people drive that journey every day. And what are we doing? Well, in actual fact, we're just polluting consistently with, of course, those fossil fuel burning vehicles. Bigger trains, longer trains, and more of a metro system that we need up here in the north is absolutely vital. And this is a long-term burn of cash. This is 20,000 jobs purely constructing the railway and all the design work that needs to go into it. And is it a lot of money? Well, actually, at a peak, we'll probably be going through around two and a half to three billion pounds a year. But up to that, actually, it's a burn of cash that we get the development work done before we can crack on with the first pieces of work. We want to electrify between Hull and Leeds and get on with it quickly. We're there, we're ready to start the grip free design. And it's important that you start to bring those key city regions and economic centres closer together to access better labour pools. You're born in Liverpool, you want to go to university in Manchester, and you might want to live in Leeds after that. You can do that journey within the hour. And then the wider connectivity piece, having Bradford as one of the key new stations on the MPR network. Bradford to Birmingham in an hour on an HS2 classic compatible train. So the opportunities are ripe. We want to get on with the investment. And now we're looking to the government to be really bold in their decision making. Thanks, Tim. Over to you, Tracy. Um, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm not going to go over what you've all heard this morning um, in my opening speech, but just to um, underscore what Tim was saying, that this is a great opportunity for government to work with us to deliver that transformational change. And certainly what Helen was saying, when you've got 42,000 people from Leeds City Region moving between Leeds City Region and Sheffield City Region a day, 88% of them by car, 100,000 vehicles on the M1 at any given time. This is our opportunity to be the greenest network, uh, to be the most ambitious for the country to help the government to, to deliver on their uh, uh, zero carbon emissions target as well. So we're ready. We have the plan, we have the vision, um, certainly talking about um, Bradford, that potential um, is, is off the scale. Those young people needing the opportunities to get between Leeds and Bradford, 
Bradford and Manchester, when to get to Wakefield, to, from Wakefield to Sheffield, takes 45 minutes on the train. Seems completely nuts. We should be, you know, moments away from Sheffield, where you jump on a train and you're there in minutes rather than taking 45. It's really important we bring government with us. And just so frustrating, just finally, if I could say, the only time it seems that transport is in the press is when journalists come up for, you know, party conferences or whatever, and they say, gosh, can you imagine? It took me ages to get to Manchester from, from Leeds. Like, this is our reality. And I'm hope, hoping that um, when Michael Gove reaches out, that he will come uh, to the north and we can show him around and, and get him on a train and, and have that conversation about our ambitions, working side by side with government's ambitions. We just need them to believe in us and to, you know, to give us them the power and the money to deliver. We have proved we can deliver on time, on budget. We just need the political will from government. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Tracy. Um, over to you, Lorna. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me to join you today as well. So I wanted to cover three points very briefly, if I may. So firstly, to give you a quick update on where we are with HS2 currently. Uh, then to focus on our contribution to the economic recovery from the pandemic, and thirdly, to focus on the future and work into this zero carbon um, transport. So where we are now, we, are, we have more than 300 sites on phase one, so London to the Midlands, and we've worked to develop a freight strategy for that to ensure we're taking 24,000 lorries off every 60 days to make sure we are not making the environmental problem worse by our sites. We've also got partners on board now to deliver our Old Oak Common um, design, and we are about to appoint for the interchange at Birmingham. But the big one really with regards to contracts and market is that we will be appointing our rolling stock contracts uh, in the next few months, which is circa 2.75 billion going into the market. And also we will have the rail systems, which is circa 3 billion in the market, which will be uh, next year at some point. So there's no doubt that the momentum for phase one, and this is actually happening and it's in construction, is coming. So for phase two, 2A, which is the Midlands to Crewe, got its royal assent earlier this year, and it's already awarded f 54 million pounds of contracts for early environmental works such as GI, and we're just about to award early civil works. So it's now progressing to, to develop Crewe to be the gateway to the north. And then for 2B, well, 2B is going to be a key topic for today's conversation, for sure. So we have a, an instruction currently to develop a western leg bill only, and our eastern leg has been on pause, as everyone is aware. We're working to develop that bill for Q122, and earlier if we can. And we are working with the department and our partners very closely on the IRP, awaiting its outcome to see what what challenges will come out of that, and perhaps what changes we will have to make for our Western Lake Bill as well. But there's no doubt that the momentum and the progress of the company over lockdown has maintained. So the second point about making a difference to the economy. So we've got more than 20,000 individuals already working on HS2, whether that's in the company itself, whether that's in contractors, or whether that's suppliers. And we've got over 500 apprentices on board already. 
When we also award the two contracts for rolling stock and rail systems, there will be an even further increase in the number of companies across the UK that we are working with. And we've already had firsthand from them that these contracts over lockdown have given them the certainty to ensure that their companies were able to be sustainable over that difficult period. So we are making a real difference. With regards to the future, not just benefits to our economy, but we have a leading role in industry and construction to put, the globe, put ourselves on the global map for delivering this high-speed rail project. Not just an all-electric new network for the country, taking people out of cars, as Tracy shared earlier, and out of planes, but also creating and developing new standards of sustainability in construction and operations of our railway. To give a quick example, three quarters of the carbon for phase one will be in the first 10 to 15 years of a 120-year lifespan. So we have to address that. We have to do everything we can do to reduce those emissions. And we've got a 50% target to reduce carbon within construction for the company. And our first report on that will be out next month. So warts and all, you can actually see how we're doing. I'm very pleased to say we've already reached 25%, though. So we are working towards making that zero future carbon transport a reality and will continue to work with our partners such as TFN to make sure we can deliver back better. Thank you. Thanks very much. And last but not least, uh, Maggie. Thank you very much. Uh, a pleasure to be here speaking to you all today. Uh, despite the uh, temperature set by the air conditioning in here, it's actually a glorious day out there. And that's great news because when you go home tonight, you won't need to put heating on. And that's great news because it appears we've got a gas shortage. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, just one in a long chain of supply chain shortages that we've seen in the last few years, from toilet rolls to beer to carbon dioxide to semiconductors and now to gas. Worldwide demand for LNG causing other supply chain issues. And these are now real issues. They're not quirks in the background of supply chains. They're impacting on the day-to-day -day lives of real people, of real voters, in the north of England and indeed across the globe. So how can the north of England and the economies help freight and logistics become more efficient? How can we help minimize the impact on communities from these perturbations which are happening on a global scale? If you are today an exporter sitting in Manchester and you wish to send your goods to Rotterdam via Teesport, the only way you can get your goods there is via the M62, if you can find an HGV driver. And if you can find an HGV driver, the journey time that it will take that driver to reach Teesport, discharge, come back, will mean that the use of the asset is really inefficient. If you want to supply to Scotland, you'll probably do a little bit better. You might be able to go on a train, uh, but when we have high-speed two trains on the network, who knows? If, heaven forbid, you trade with people in the enemy in London, then you maybe you'll do a little bit better again. But what about getting out through the Channel Tunnel and beyond and into mainland Europe? Our networks are not fit for purpose for the movement of freight to, from, and within the Nook Manchester to Leeds Corridor and, indeed, the north of England. And don't even get me started on trying to find a warehouse because that is a real challenge, uh, particularly uh, in the north. So we need to be doing better than this. And I'm a bit of a crack record on this. It's not the first time I've been on this platform at a TFN conference, as Tony has reminded me earlier. 
But I do sense that the tide is turning a little bit. Government, uh, in recent publications, the William Shapps Plan for Rail and Transport Decarbonisation Plan, is committed to modal shift to rail to help decarbonise freight. Transport for the North themselves are doing some groundbreaking work on freight logistics, exploring the potential for the region to help those businesses do better. And so I think it comes down now to three things. One, the investment, which we've heard about. Secondly, the choices. Like Tim, I don't want to see freight trains trundling through uh, the Castlefield Corridor either. I want to see them moving at line speed through the Castlefield Corridor. Can we look at the choices that we make about how we move freight across there in a pragmatic and sensible way? And finally, how can Transport for the North work with other devolved and sub-national bodies because freight logistics is not measured at local level. These are global supply chains. And whilst we're looking quite rightly and properly at the things we do in this region to improve transport for the benefit of its users, we also need those connections with Scotland, with the Midlands, with the South East, and indeed with countries around the globe to make sure that those supply chains are really effectively and we don't have empty shelves in the supermarkets in Blackburn or Burnley or Leeds or Sheffield. Thank you. So if Chris Heaton-Harris were here right now, would you say, uh, what would you say, and what would you say the consequences are for not building both of those rail projects in full? Do you want to go first, Tracy? Yeah, sure. Um, as I said, I th Chris is a, a decent collaborator. He's, he works with us. He, he wants to help. But I think, I think if he was here, he would keep saying, well, we have to wait for the spending review. Yeah, we definitely. have to wait for the integrated rail plan. You'll know, you'll know soon. Uh, we're still having conversations. I mean, it has to be that the, the interconnectivity, the, that is the success. That, that is the, the, the way that we will make it work. We have to have Northern Powerhouse Rail. Um, just the disruption. When we're going to go into tra the TransPennine upgrade, there's going to be massive disruption. We need, if there was any issues on the, on the TransPennine, we need another uh, offer as well. We need Northern Powerhouse Rail. Uh, including that station at Bradford, and we need HS2 East. I've, I've been saying to everybody that will listen, surely we must be starting at Leeds. Let's just get going at Leeds and transform the, the South Bank and the station and then work south um, rather than working from south to north as is tradition. Let's get going here. We have the skills, we have the talents. Um, if, we, if we don't get going, we'll miss the opportunity potentially for our fantastic rail institute that's going to be one of the best in the world. All these opportunities are just paused while we wait for government. So I think, you know, Chris probably has made that decision not to come because he would just spend the morning <laughs> saying, I'm not sure, I don't know, you'll have to wait. So it is frustrating, but we, that, that connection, that joined up plan is how it's going to work and how we're going to have that 21st uh, uh, century transport system that's going to be the envy of Europe. And, and Lorna, do you want to go next? What's the consequences? What would you say to Chris Heaton Harris if you don't build the eastern leg, say, of HS2? So I would. So I think the consequences are the the point of HS2 on one of its key benefits is regeneration and investment. And what this level of uncertainty is currently doing is it's actually hindering that. So we look at Birmingham that has that certainty because Phase One has its hybrid bill. 
We see, you know, 20 billion pounds of investment forecast now because of the improved connectivity for the region. We, we can't secure that on the eastern leg. In fact, to date, we can't secure that fully on the western leg because we haven't actually deposited the bill yet. But that said, we've been instructed to develop one, and the market knows that, and that in itself continues that momentum. And I think for us, that certainty, not only for our passengers, so knowing it's coming, yes, it might be some time away, but knowing it's coming, that they'll have that increased choice the ability to increase their opportunities, whether it's personally or for their businesses, is absolutely fundamental to make sure that we make the best of the opportunities. Because as I say, without that, our market really struggles and we won't get best money for our buck the way that it's delayed. Thank you. Tim, what would your message for him be and then, and then Maggie? Well, I think, I think quite simply, you know, we don't think about the M25 anymore, and yet, when the M25 was being developed, all the issues around that. And I think this is a long-term prospect for us. It's setting the north tone for the next 100 years. We have a strategic transport plan. It was you know, constructed three years ago. It still stands. Nobody's knocked down that we won't deliver 100 billion extra in the GVA and an extra 850,000 fixed-time jobs. And I think, ultimately, for us, it is a burn of money, it is a draw on the cash, but if you want to level up, you have to open up the transport links. You just won't do it otherwise. There's nothing else that gives you actually the biggest bang for the buck. And let's be really, really clear here that we've moved from a £46 billion MPL network <coughs> down to £42 billion with all the challenges that we've done in transport for the north. And we think we can still build MPR at 2015 numbers for around the mid-30s. So that will give us clearly... And that's including the station to Bradford, is it? That's, that's not including a cut the price station version to Bradford. Absolutely. Yeah. That's including the station to Bradford and all the electrification. And what you're getting for that is a real bang on the capacity, the connectivity, connecting communities, bringing those city regions far closer together and giving people choices. Because at the moment, People from Sheffield don't really want to travel to Manchester because it takes 49 minutes at best. Mm. When we talk about today, Manchester to Leeds taking over an hour. I'll tell you what I'll give you, 25 minutes. Yeah. I'll give you six trains an hour. And those trains are as long as 11 car Pendolino. <coughs> so why wouldn't you want to do that? And it's not the money right now. It's a burn over 20 years. And we're ready to go and we're absolutely up for it and we want to move at pace but we need that green light but what am i going to give you back government at 2040 i'm going to give you 3.4 billion back a year in building npr by 2060 that's going to rise to 14.4 billion per year who wouldn't want to do that investment anybody in this room we might be preaching to the no. choir, but it does sound great. And, and lastly, Maggie, what, what would the, what's the message from the freight industry for Chris Heaton-Harris and, and Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak? So, I mean, Chris Heaton-Harris has been uh, very strong on rail freight, not least because he's got one of Britain's largest uh, rail freight terminals in his constituency. So, uh, I, you know, I don't think I could tell anything, him anything about rail freight that he wouldn't already know. Mm. I mean, from my point of view, uh, you know, I think we all understand the fiscal situation we are in. My dentist has just cancelled all the appointments because the NHS dentist has run out of money. 
um, we're waiting to see whether uh, it'll get put back in or whether we have to, have to put our hands in our pockets. We understand it's a really, really tough time and that that means perhaps we have to uh, keep campaigning and look at the choices as well because we may not get everything immediately. So what are the choices that we can take? So my point of view is quite simple. I would like to be able to run container trains over the Pennines from Teesport to Manchester, from Liverpool to Leeds, etc. If we can get Northern Powerhouse Rail, great. If we can get TRU, great. If we can't, how are we going to do it? So let's work through what our choices are to get the outputs that the region needs. And if that means we have, as Tim says, to think about this over a 20-year programme, to look at how that funding can be progressed, tough choices. But the outputs stay, and we have to work flat out to get those outputs. And from a freight point of view, that's that pass over the fence. <laughs> I'd just like to come in there, I'd just, just like to add another angle as well. It's not looking for all this to be funded by the government. There are some great third-party opportunities. Investment in building those stations and a long-term opportunity for retail there. We talk, Maggie, you know, very much about opening up the network, freeing up uh, train capacity for freight trains to run through. And you're right, look at the Midlands, look at uh, Dirt, look at all the other uh, major freight terminals that are opening up off the railway. What are we doing up here in the north? Privateers, where's the investment? Why aren't we putting something up at Penrith coming off the West Coast main line? There are so many opportunities. The railway started in the north, and actually we're looking the wrong way, and particularly in freight. We should really be opening up this network because freight, quite frankly, saved this country, and particularly rail freight due, through the COVID pandemic. So we need to look bigger, we need to be bolder. We're always insular. We're in the north here. This is where the railway started back in 1830. We want to open up that capacity so we open up those arteries to get that finance turning around. So it's not just government money, it's private money, and we know there's a lot sat there within the, the, the <coughs> pension funds, etc., that are willing to put their hand in the pocket because they're going to know they're going to get a good return back here. And is there already a mechanism for the private sector to contribute to these new projects in the north? I was, you might, Andy Burnham this morning was sort of was, was making the point on Twitter that I think the Northern Line um, extension opened this morning at the cost of. I don't know, two billion, I think, something like that. Um, and saying, you know, meanwhile, the North is waiting. But lots of people kind of chipped in to say, well, hang on, Andy, that was private sector investment and the developers of the Battersea power station uh, put their hands in, in the pocket. So is, is there a way already for businesses to, to pay in to Northern projects? Certainly, with, certainly within the station developments or within the private work I talked about there with the uh, intermodal freight up, there is definitely private money and there's vehicles to be able to do that. And I think you know, we need to be bolder as well. We nearly financed electrification of Hull to Selby. Uh, we'd love to actually continue that conversation because why wouldn't you want to do that? You'd actually bring on that investment earlier, get those benefits earlier, take some of the pressure off the public purse as well. So we keep on having conversations continually with, um, with pension funds, with investment bodies, with contractors that are really keen to get going on this project. And I think that is another vehicle that we should seriously consider uh, as we see the spending review come through. Mm -hmm. If I could just mention as yeah. well, Helen, that um, 
the combined authority are working with partners all the time. Um, for White Rose uh, Station, for example, we're working with private partners. Um, it is a way to get stations built, but we do, you know, this is not something a combined authority can do because it is across regions that it is about the joined up plan that we need that big, those big injections of cash and the commitment over many years rather than potentially working with one business that may change hands or um, you know uh, change direction we, we need the consistency of government support in order to deliver and of course the capital projects are easy to fund when you get that money from government. It's uh, potentially a majority capital rather than revenue, and we need revenue funding to, to be increased as well for these sorts of projects. And I think if I could also add on that, one of the things in freight that's challenging and where things in the north of England have fallen down in the past is the planning system. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think Tracy, it was yourself talking about Michael Gove this morning. You know, Michael Gove's now picked up uh, responsibility, but they call him the housing minister not the planning minister, because actually the planning system at the moment is wholly dictated by the delivery of housing, and housing is essential, of course. But actually, if you looked at the government planning-wide bill that came out last year, obviously, mostly overturned now, it didn't mention freight once, it didn't mention industrial land once, it didn't mention logistics once. So as, as a region, and I think TFN has the potential to be influential in this, we need to think about how we are planning for all the things that we want. Because if you want that private money spent, then people have to be able to navigate the planning system to get the consent for that new terminal facility or that new railing location or that port expansion or whatever else it is that we need. So there's a spatial piece to this as well. This is, you know, it's visibly obvious about the location of stations and new housing. It's the same point in wider parts of the economy. And ju just last question from me before I'll open it up to, um, to the audience. I mean, many people are, pr are projecting a kind of permanent reduction in passenger numbers as a result of the pandemic, both because of more people working from home for at least part of the week and also people being frightened. I think you, you, mm. you mentioned a statistic this morning, Tracy. Was it one in three people are unsure if they'll ever feel confident? It, it, it is very worrying yeah. that people feel it's not a safe environment for them, so we need to build up that confidence. But if there is this permanent reduction um, in, in commuter passenger numbers, like, how can you convince people it's worth spending the money on such massive projects if we're not going to have the passengers there on the trains? So I think what's really important to say here, over the last 20 years, uh, pre-COVID, there was 194% growth in passenger numbers on the trains in the north of England. We will come back quicker and stronger in the north of England in terms of those passengers, because ultimately, we have a choice. We either sit on the M62 mm. for an hour or sit coming into Manchester for an hour on the 606 uh, or get out of our cars. But there's reasons why we don't want to get on those trains. Mm. It's how much it costs us. Mm. And Tracy was very clear before that a London style system, it's capped on the tube. You don't pay any more than eight pounds for that day. And yet doing those kind of distances up here in the north of England is 20 odd pounds. I thought we were levelling up. So in actual fact, we need to really think about those concessions and how they work. And ultimately, I've started travelling back on the trains now every day from the 2nd of August. They're the cleanest they've ever been. Yeah, they are nice, aren't they? We wear our masks on yeah. the trains. Sometimes. There's seating available at the moment. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, when that bank comes back again, we're all going to be standing between Manchester and Leeds. Oh. And I think that is very much around getting that Trans Pennine upgrade 
really up and going so they can crack on with that job and get that built while we continue on with the development of the new line between Manchester and Leeds. So I do see people coming back physically now, but just another example, I live in Lancaster, I want to go to Leeds. It takes me over two hours on the train. It's like only 40 miles. Guess what? Another 30 minutes, I'm in the centre of London and yeah. that's 250 miles away. It just can't be right that we don't have that investment in the north of England and actually really open up that capacity so we have a far better system that we once did, mm -hmm. but we've let go. We were still shutting railway lines in the 1960s, mm. 70s, 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. So we need to reverse that. And anyone else, do we still need big expensive new railway lines if a lot of people are working from home more often or are put off from travelling on trains? I think it's about the, the combination of travel though. Um, it is about going to work, but it's also an expanding leisure market that we are, we have so much to offer across West Yorkshire. Our great coast, coastline, our great villages and museums, and it's about getting people onto the train with their families. But how could you when the costs are so exorbitant and you're gonna jump in your car instead? So I think it's about opening up that offer um, uh, encouraging people back on the train so that they can see for themselves, uh, uh, as Tim just said, you know, how clean it is, um, how much space there is, and to get people back for leisure purposes with great offers on ticket prices, because it's just not fair, doesn't, it's just poor value for money. Yeah, and I guess, so from my perspective, I mean, HS2 for me is very much around three Cs, so it's capacity, connectivity, and carbon reduction. And the point around capacity, if we can take the longer journeys off the localised services, that will give the, the, the regions and, and cities more opportunity for their passengers to have more capacity for local journeys, a more pleasant service, and actually supporting freight as well, absolutely. But we, that is the purpose of HS2 to be able to do that. And then the connectivity will undoubtedly enhance the, the economy at the same time. So I, I think from, I mean, from HS2's perspective, this is a very long-term program, and therefore we are not going to dramatically uh, change the service we're planning to deliver at this point in time. The department instructors on the service we've, we've, we've to deliver, and there's certainly no change at this point. But I think what we would see is that it's a, it's a different service that we will be providing, and therefore we are less concerned. We believe you build, they will come, for sure. And I Thank said you. that was my last question, but I'm going to ask really last one and very quick answers, yes or no, from all of you. Should we make driving more expensive in order to pay better rail services? Tim? What we should do with driving, very simple, is remove tax in your vehicle and actually put that on the fuel. Then how you use your vehicle is how you'll pay. Okay. Jason? Um, make it all electric is my, um, my suggestion. Yeah. Um, so for me... Electric cars, absolutely fine. I think what we need to promote, and I think the HS2 generation does this, is the younger generation, it's not all about saving up for a car. They actually get the fact that they want to reduce the carbon. And I think they, we will have to do less to encourage them to get on a low carbon train than actually save up for a car. I think, you know, you take the 20s, 20 year olds, Getting a car is not the be, and be all and end all. Travelling is, and getting there in comfort and quickly is key. Maggie? Well, you my, my, my kids um, want me to drive them everywhere because we've spent the last year and a half frightening them off the buses. So <laughs> um, I think we've probably got uh, you know, a bit to do. <laughs> to do 
Okay, great. Any questions from the floor? There's a roving mic at the back. Do you want to start with a lady over there? Yeah. Should we take a couple of questions at once? Yeah. Maybe these two from the front first, and there's a chap at the back there. Thanks. My, my name's Mary Farrer. I'm transportation lead for Calderdale Council, and I, I agree with almost everything you've said, except for I don't think electric cars are the panacea for the future. But what I wanted to ask you was, um, what are the plans for the Ordsel Cord and Bradford Interchange? Because those are critical bottlenecks in the rail network that really need to be, need to be uh, resolved um, alongside the investment in um, high-speed rail. But also, um, the congestion charging in London generates 150 million pounds a year and has resulted in a 10% modal shift. And the workplace parking levy in Nottingham has generated nine million pounds a year, and also um, has has induced a, a modal shift. And I'm, I'm just asking the, the, these, the key leaders in the room now whether or not they are bold enough to, to to embrace some of these very big decisions that will actually um, generate some income for the north, to as sort of a plan B if government doesn't give us enough money. Thanks very much. We'll take one more question. Who had their hand up? It was you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, my name's Kevin Swift. I want to talk about the limitations of high-speed rail. Most studies indicate that you get your biggest bang for the buck by sorting out the more local transport uh, constraints. The, the group of people that Tracy mentioned earlier trying to get to a badly located distribution warehouse, and that could be repeated many times. Tracy, again, referred him to 42,000 people moving between the Leeds and the Sheffield city regions. People moving from all different points of one city region to all different points of another. I suspect if 2% of those people moved on to high-speed rail, that would be top end of the estimates. Um, I live in Wakefield. Again, Tracy quoted travel time from Wakefield to Sheffield. HS2 is proposed to simply go straight through Wakefield without stops, and the only change to Wakefield Centre to Sheffield Centre that would come from HS2 is quite probably we would lose the fastest trains, the current cross-country trains, which would probably shift onto, onto HS2. It, in general, an awful lot of the problems, the freight problems talked about, High-speed rail will, be, will do nothing to take those freight trains out of Piccadilly Station, for instance. That, I think that's my, my point, that high-speed rail, very good city centre to city centre, um, very bad, sometimes counterproductive in terms of those other journeys. The official estimate, for instance, is that HS2 would, would take one fast train off the Leeds, Wakefield, Doncaster, and that it would give the additional capacity release estimated as being one limited stop train between those two places. I think I'm going offset, to offset by the fact that we lose a huge number of bushy commuter spaces on the actual current intercity. Thanks. Okay. There wasn't a question there, but I, I guess the question might be, what's, what's, the what's the sell for people in towns far from, far from high-speed stops? But do you want to just take specifically first, Tim, I think the Ordsall Call Bradford yeah. Interchange question. Absolutely. So the Ordsall Cord uh, has basically uh, caused a major issue within Manchester 
sending two extra trains per hour from uh, Victoria through to uh, Piccadilly and then down to the airport. And the Manchester Recovery Task Force, which was being set up uh, in 2020, very much with the Department and Transport for North in collaboration, looking at what further infrastructure needs to be built in Manchester so we get that far better throughput. Because we just can't carry on as we come post-COVID pandemic to actually increase the amount of trains and have direct connectivity through Manchester from South Yorkshire to the airport, for instance. Uh, so that work's ongoing. Uh, we're looking to tranche that work up in terms of getting some of the early wins in, uh, and we hope to start sort of construction uh, around the sort of mid-20s uh, to get that moving. Uh, but very clearly, when you start a plan on the railways, you see it all the way through. And the plan was to build platform 1516 at Manchester Piccadilly. Uh, and we very much feel the evidence base will show that that work uh, should be built and we should carry on and doing further work at Oxford Road. I think that's important. We're already looking now at the uh, MPR uh, potential station at Bradford. Uh, some early works going around there in terms of station location, uh, benefit analysis work. That's all really positive. And we also want to see the Calder Valley line swung into a new station, new four-platform station uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of Bradford. And very much what you were saying, uh, uh, important that Northern Powerhouse Rail is more that regional railway, that uh, metro-type system that will tie into the HS2 line. And we're very much looking at the east to west connectivity. So a lot of those local stations uh, will have stops on the MPR uh, line. And that is really important because it moves a lot more people quicker because we've also added capacity in there mm -hmm. and the trains are longer as well. Tracy, are you brave enough to introduce a congestion charge or workplace parking levy in West yeah, Yorkshire? But, well, I have no plans to do either of those things because I think um, the modal shift, I'm hoping, will be driven by our commitment to improving the bus network. Um, that's uh, the manifesto I stood, I stood on, is to improve the network and to um, investigate public control of the buses. So we've invested a million in that work. We're, we're, we've bid for government money to improve um, the, the network uh, as it is at the moment. Uh, we're already seeing uh, improvements. Uh, I've introduced an under-19 cheaper ticket, and that's, that's actually um, shown some success. 90% of uh, young people are back on the buses. I think penalising people for having been forced to use their car because the system is poor isn't necessarily the, the, the carrot and the stick, I think offering something that really does work, which is cost-effective, a tap-in, tap-out system that's capped, that's fair, the buses are green, that comes on time, is reliable. Um, if we can make that so attractive um, that you don't need your car, then we don't necessarily potentially need the congestion charge. And if I might just say, I was stood at the bus stop the other day and the bus came opposite, on the other, opposite direction, and one of the drivers leant out and he said, Oi, you're our mayor, aren't you? It's Tracy. I'm like, oh, hello, yeah. And he said, what are you doing at the bus stop? Have you not got a car? And I think the point to say to the public across West Yorkshire is, it is that it, the car is not the first choice. You know, buses would be your first choice. And for those people without a car, it wouldn't impact their lives that they don't have a car because the bus network is so good. So I just say, have, you know, 
give us a minute to try and get the buses right. Um, and then obviously, if that's not working, you have to look at other measures. Of course you do, because we've got a green uh, zero carbon target to hit by 2038, so it's really important. But also just to pick up on what we were speaking about, um, EV vehicles, when 60% when of the second-hand car market comes from fleet cars, we need to work with business to persuade them to go green and to go to EV vehicles. Because it isn't the panacea, because actually they're so expensive, not everybody can afford one. So really important. And if I can just um, pick up on Kevin's point about Wakefield, I really, really understand the challenge around Wakefield and the, 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 the public's um, frustration that HS2 looks like if it happens we'll be just coming through their region with no benefits to them but if I could just say we are a region that is uh, that we all rise together and I think the opportunities for young people and those retraining in Wakefield for good skilled jobs for training for apprenticeships those businesses those powder coating businesses those distribution businesses all the smaller SMEs in Wakefield will benefit from this massive infrastructure project across our region that is not just HS2 but is NPR through Bradford as well and that upgrade to TransPennine. We want to be the center of engineering and hopefully I think that will benefit all our regions. Obviously there has to be proper thorough consultation with the people all along that line but I would say that the benefits definitely for me help Wakefield, help the five towns because it brings jobs, skills, mm -hmm. investment and regional generation. Let's take some more questions. I think there's a chap at the back, you at the front. Let's take these three here. Okay, um, Matt Christie, I'm from a company called Built Environment Networking. Um, might be a bit of a controversial one. First of all, it's great that we finally got um, a Metro Mayor in West Yorkshire who can actually represent the true people's views in West Yorkshire, in Westminster. I've been at several events like this, I guess. I've even heard Laura speak before. She always speaks uh, brilliantly about the need for, for HS2. But there used to be a saying of HS2 um, all the way, so to speak. And how unhelpful and what is being done to get Metro mayors, for example, like Andy Street, back on side, who back in July said that there might not be a need mm -hmm. for uh, an eastern leg of, of HS2. And how can you know, we bring the whole country with us, I suppose, on the need for um, Northern Power, House Rail, um, the need for HS2 right the way up to, to Leeds and, and maybe even beyond one day, um, especially considering I feel in the last two years, regions have become more parochial and have started fighting, you know, I suppose, more for their own investment. East-West Rail in the, you know, in the, in the England's economic heartland, Midlands Connect Rail. Yeah. You know, what, what are we doing to make sure that you know, we're bringing everyone with us on, on the northern journey rather than maybe um, creating envy, if that's the right way? Thanks very much. That's what's happened. If, if you make everything a competition, you could argue that's how they end up always fighting. Um, who, who's on this table and then the man at the front there. Hi, uh, Tim Danvers from Atkins. Um, not disagreed with anything anybody's said today, so it's been very positive. My, my question is, it's about IRP and, and, <laughs> and where we think it sits within government, because when Sir John Armit presented IRP, there was choices, and picking up what Maggie said earlier on about choices, and is that going to be a treasury choice, and 
if that's a treasury choice, then the, I suspect the lowest price option will be the one that goes ahead. Or is that going to sit somewhere else within government as to make that decision as to which of those options we're going to go forward with? And we've got between now and, say, in theory to October, whatever it is, for the um, comprehensive spending review, how do we lobby to make sure we get the right answer? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And lastly, chap in the middle there. Oh, okay. We're going to do four in one then. You and then you. Uh, Gareth Dennis, engineer and writer. Um, Helen, sorry for sending you to Winsford Station that time to talk about HS2, but it helps with my next question. And thanks, Kevin, for your um, comment, not a question, because it makes my point very nicely. Um, HS2's main benefit is not on HS2, it's on the existing railway network, right? For more local services, more freight. That's, that's it. And, and at the same time, the main challenge to HS2 is that that case has not been made, people don't understand it, and there is no plan, correctly, you know, rightly so from, from people who are sceptical of the project, there is no plan to actually enact and make use of that release capacity benefit. As Maggie can say, actually HS2 is a hindrance where the trains are running on the existing line because it's potentially going to impact on what freight can be run. So how is Northern Powerhouse Rail not going to repeat those mistakes? How is Northern Powerhouse Rail going to make sure that the existing network, the benefits of the existing network, are, are extolled very loudly? Thanks. And then we'll just the last question. You've been very patient. Man in the middle. Uh, thank you. Uh, Hans Wondry from Warrington. Uh, the question I've got is, uh, how do we find the answer to the short-term financial thinking of the Treasury and the long-term transport solutions needed for the North. I'm looking at the budget, it says a uh, Northern budget, and I think that, that could be one of the answers. <laughs> Thanks very much. First question felt like a Tracy question to me. Are you trying to woo Andy Street to get him back on track? Well, um, I have a good relationship with Andy Street. Yeah. I think many of the challenges he faces are challenges I face um, as mayors. Um, I think it, it, it wasn't helpful that he said that, but certainly we are working together, um, UK 100, on a big uh, campaign to try and get more powers for mayors to deliver on climate change. So surely uh, one of those powers should be to lobby government to deliver on this integrated network that would actually reduce our, our, our carbon emissions. So um, I would try and encourage him to think that actually um, HS2 East is part of that zero carbon journey um, and work with him. But it is about collaboration and um, the point was made that it looks like regions are fighting between each other, but I would say that's partly devolution, that's a good thing, that we are standing up for our regions. I am the voice of West York, you know, the people of West Yorkshire, but it's also just what Helen said, that we are competing for a reduced um, funding pot. Let's not forget that the Shared Prosperity Fund is, is not the equivalent of the EU funding that we had before we left the EU. So the funding pot is getting smaller and we are having to bid in beauty contests for those even smaller bit, bits of that money. So I think it is about us as mayors working together and let's not forget three out of five people in the north are represented by, currently by a mayor. So we have a strong voice and we should definitely work together. Can I, can I just add in a point on that? Because I'm a former northerner now living in the south and I was up at 5.15 to take the first 12 miles by train, which takes over 40 minutes to get from south London to central London. So you know, not everybody lives in Reading and commutes to Paddington. And so when we keep hearing about 40 minute journeys across the north being outrageous and being happening because 
people like me who live in London have nicked all the money, <laughs> can I just say that that isn't right? And, and actually, I think there's a narrative here, which is that in the North, these investments stand on their own. The case for them is clear. The environmental case, the social case, the inclusion case is clear. This isn't about one reason versus the other. This is about a case that washes its face by itself without having to compare it to the people who live in Margate or Tower Hamlets or other equally deprived bits or well-to-do mm -hmm. bits of the country. And the point you're making, Tracy, I absolutely agree with. Getting that devolution story straight for all the mayors where they exist, principally in the north but everywhere, getting that devolved authority in the right place for those bodies that want it, and the Mayor of London has some of that, great, it works, doesn't have others of it, it doesn't work, but, you know, we, we have to get those bedrock bits right, and then the case for the North stands, and it washes its face completely, we don't mm. need to be mm. saying we need money in the North because you once had it, we need to be saying we need money in the North because we've got a rock-solid case here that improves the region, includes the prosperity of the region, and helps the UK as a whole. Yeah. And that's why <laughs> Transport for North is here, to provide that economic and analytical advice uh, to the members of our board so we can really push that agenda. And I think that's been really important in the last six months, uh, although we have had a delay to the IRP, actually it's been really helpful because the benefits of Northern Powerhouse Rail have increased by 30%. It was always the case to get that programme with a business case ratio of one or over. We've got that for the members' network. And that's where we can be very clear as to the benefits that will come from that. The other thing that we need to be mindful of is, from an engineering perspective, we need to make sure that the people there to build it. And that has got to be really right in the foresight to make sure that those uh, educational facilities, further education, universities, were out there saying, we will be needing those engineers to be able to build this network. Because otherwise, although there's money to be able to build them, we won't have enough people to be able to do that. So there's a real big push on that as well. And just we're, we're coming to the end, so just briefly, do you want to ask, answer Gareth's question about what plans are being made to, um, to exploit the um, increased capacity, if I understood the correctly? Yeah, so absolutely. We've already looked at uh, a number of freight routes, particularly into uh, Liverpool area, where you can run uh, extra freight trains because of the new line between uh, Liverpool, Warrington and uh, Manchester, and also some further regional services. But what we're doing as Transport for the North uh, with our Rail North colleagues uh, uh, is building a, a, a train service specification to understand all the movements of the North. Because the one big thing we are going to have when Transpan and Upgrade winds itself up, and hopefully very soon now, we want to understand how those diversion routes work as well and how Northern Powerhouse Rail can interact to make sure that we have a build programme that works for everybody. Because what we don't want to do is say, the North Railways are shut down for the next 20 years while we rebuild them. We want to make sure that there's still capacity and connectivity in there for the travelling public to come back on the railways. And let's just get the last two questions answered. So in terms of um, where does the decision making really sit? Is it, is it with the Treasury? And also, key question, how do we turn sort of short term uh, government thinking into real long term planning and, and investment? Who wants to chip in there? Well, I, I do think there is a tension between Treasury and number 10, as I said earlier. Um, I think, you know, the pandemic has been, it has been incredibly tough, hasn't it? And Rishi Sunak has had the taps turned on to protect and support businesses uh, and individuals, and now he's having to pull back. But I would suggest that 
that pulling back at this stage would be dev devastating in the long term. We need to be brave, be bold, and invest in order to recoup for uh, um, those across the country for the next few decades. Um, I, think, I think it's really important that we don't turn off the taps just at the point when we need that expansion. Thanks so much. I think it's time to wrap up now. Um, thank you so much for a really positive um, discussion today. A lot of, well, largely quite a lot of passion for these projects, but I guess all there is to do now is sit and wait, wait for this long-awaited integrated rail review, wait to see what Boris and Rishi ultimately um, decide. So thank you so much to all the panelists for taking the time to come here today. Thank you for listening and thank you for your questions. Sorry there wasn't more time. Should we give them a round of applause and then off we lunch? Hope you enjoyed hearing from our panelists there all about the importance of High Speed North. Don't forget, we will be bringing you all of the breakout sessions on this podcast. And also you can watch the videos too on our website at transportforthenorth.com slash annual hyphen conference. Thanks very much for listening and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe on Spotify and SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook for all our latest updates. And join us on our website where you can find all the latest news and sign up to our All Points North newsletter.